Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Jennifer Loudon. Writing her first book as a young, new mother, Jen Loudon has come a long way in finding and creating space for comfort in the lives of many. A teacher committed to connection and sharing wisdom, and a writer encouraging women to tell their stories, Jen's work allows us to keep opening and waking up to the world. Her words guide readers to the place in our hearts where we can find solace in this truth. There is wholeness above all. Jen, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being someone who I've got to learn from and connect with over the years in social media. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. <laughs> it's nice to be seen, right? It's one of our human needs. And even though social media uh, vexes me, <laughs> it's also brought so many gifts into my life. So yeah, thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. I really love social media. I'm pretty sure that's how I first learned about your work. So I like that we have that connection. I'm really excited to talk with you today about a lot of the work that you do, not just as a writer, but as a coach and as a retreat leader. But to start off, I'm really curious, what is writing to you? It is my cross to bear since we've just come out of Easter, although I know everyone's going to be listening to this later. It is the way I make sense of life. It is how I connect to myself. And I'll say more about each of those. The cross to bear is that writing has always been um, very difficult for me. I have some learning uh, challenges, disabilities, I suppose. And I have a lot of uh, resistance, as most of us do. And that has is something that I, I'm very actively always wrestling with, very actively right now. Certainly love to talk about it if you want to. And then how it's how I understand the world. I have the kind of brain that can't think through things. I have to write about them to understand them. And I also have to be in conversation with people. And that's probably a good segue at some point into why I teach and coach. Um, and writing for me is it's when, when you ask me this, I actually tear up. It's like so important and so difficult at the same time. And I, I feel like it's, it's the way that I, I do everything. And yet it's also the thing that I can, um, put off doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's, it's all that, you know, it's really, um, it's, I just feel this, this, this pressure in my heart and tears in my eyes and, and gratitude. And also, uh, damn, wish it was easy. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. And You've written before about the challenge that you have with writing um, because of some of the challenges you face. How is it for you to talk openly about that? And what has that meant to you as someone who has really impacted millions of people with your books and with your words? Well, I will say that for many years in my speaking and teaching, I thought I had to be someone that I wasn't. So there was a great sense of needing to pretend to be wiser or smarter or more together. 
And as I've let that be healed and dissipate and show up more and more as I am in this moment, who knows how I will be in five minutes or in an hour, um, I found that my ability to be of service to others has unfolded or increased pretty drastically. And my own sense of exhaustion that I used to get from teaching and speaking or doing an interview like this has almost completely dissipated. And I was marveling at that because I was, I'm classified myself as an introvert on the Myers-Briggs scale. People are usually amazed by that who don't know about introversion because I don't present as an introvert, but we, we know it's where we get our energy recharged, of course. And if I had to spend any time in interviews or teaching or leading a retreat um, or chose to, I should say, or with, with family, friends, um, I would really have to retreat afterwards. And that's not true anymore. And I, was, I was thinking about that this morning because we had a fairly social weekend. And um, yeah, so for me, this, this, this wholeness, wholeness above all, wholeness in our teaching, wholeness in our social media pre presentation, wholeness in our relationships, wholeness in our creativity. It's when we, you know, fight that or we put it in a bag or we deny it or we say, oh, no, I can't go there, that I think we exhaust ourselves and, and increase our resistance. So in other words, yes, I, it's been great for me to be honest and the more honest I can be, but never that fake honesty, right? That, oh, let me bring out my pain and show it to you, mm -hmm. right? Or let me, oh, please be a victim with me in this. You know, mm -hmm. I, I certainly used to do that. <laughs> that is not what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I just am... I find myself curious about uh, one of your first books, which is a woman's comfort book. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how the process of writing that was for you in the beginning when you were still creating your business and creating this life and at the same time struggling with writing and struggling with putting your words out there. Oh, honey, I wasn't even creating a business. I was trying to create a self. I was in my 20s when I wrote that book. I just cleaned out. We're, we're preparing our house for sale. We're going to be moving um, from Bainbridge Island, Washington to somewhere around Boulder, Colorado for my husband's work in the next four to six months. And so this weekend I was going through old files and I found a letter that I'd written to a mentor of mine Marcy Tellinger, uh, in 1990, when I had first, when I had just sold the Woman's Comfort book. So I hadn't written it yet. It, had, it was published in 1992. So what was I in 1990? I'm 52 now. So let's do the math. You do it for me. How old was I? <laughs> 27. I was 27 when I wrote that book. So in other words, long-winded way of saying, I had no idea what I was up to. I had an idea for that book come to me in a moment of great surrender after months of great stuckness and pain and depression. And I latched onto that title and it became my grail. It became a huge healing for me. And because of who I am, the way writing shows up for me, the way, especially when I was younger, needing to be successful and having an identity shows up for me still, I would say a tremendous amount of lightness around that now, but it's still there. I had to take that, that grail, that healing came to me as a book title, and then it became a book project, and then it became a business. 
And when I look at it from a soul perspective, it's like, well, of course, my sweet little, my sweet little soul was going, hey, this would be really good for you to learn how to take care of yourself because you had no idea. And it would be really good for you to embrace your gifts of writing and teaching through it. Um, but it was, a, it was at the same time an incredibly difficult path for me because, um, oh, for so many reasons. Yeah. Mm. So, so writing it was delicious and light and fun and and probably the easiest thing I ever wrote. <laughs> I would like to have that experience again. I keep I keep asking, you know, the great muse, mm-hmm. the great pumpkin, the great pumpkin, come, come and give me that experience again. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and <laughs> well, and that book is just you know one of many that you have created. Um, but as you've mentioned, writing isn't all that you do. Um, you're also a teacher and and a teacher, not in the traditional sense, um, I think, my experience of you is not in that traditional sort of pedagogical sense, but really as uh, more of a a seeker who shares wisdom. Mm, I love that. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how teaching came to be for you and specifically about your teaching a program for teachers mm. called Teach Now. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, when that first book, The Woman's Comfort Book, was, was published, I was sitting in my publisher's office, Harper, San Francisco, um, and one of the publishing people came in the room and she said, oh, so do you teach workshops? And I laughed at her. (laughs) I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm 27 years old. (laughs) I don't teach workshops. I can't. I mean, it was so vastly unimaginable to me. It's as if you said to me right now, oh, and in a few minutes, you'll know how to levitate. (laughs) So, uh, but it planted a seed. It planted a seed. And my, the woman's comfort book at first was, was going to get a tremendous amount of backing from Harper, New York. They were very excited about the book, and then they read it, and they said, "Oh no, it's it's there's too many candles in it. <laughs> it's too new age. Mm. It's too fluffy." We thought it was going to be something else, and and my heart broke a little bit. But I, well, I'm a very determined person. It's probably my biggest superpower, and I'm very stubborn. And so I thought, uh-uh, I'm not going to let this book disappear. And I'm sure there was an edge of desperation to that. So somehow, in my in my research or reading. Remember, this is way pre-internet. I heard about somebody named Wayne Dyer, who I didn't know who he was, and I think I've yet to read a book of his, and, but how he, with his first book, had filled up his trunk and gone around the United States and just done whatever he could with it. And I thought, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to go around and teach workshops. So I bought a mailing list of adult education centers and I sent them proposals and I booked workshops for three months around the United States. And then the book started to be published. It was published rather, and it started to sell well from word of mouth. And my publisher gave me support to fill in book events and a lot of media around that. And I literally took my parents' Ford Taurus station wagon, filled it with books (laughs) and my little boom box so I could do my workout tapes on the road and my weights and (laughs) quilts. So when I was staying in a nasty motel, I could take the nasty bedspread off. And I stayed on friends' couches. And anyone who had ever said to me, you can stay with me, I showed up. <laughs> and, I, and I taught for three months. And, and I learned a lot. And I suffered a lot. 
And that suffering became the basis 20 some years later for that course Teach Now. Everything that I learned along the way of being a self-taught personal growth teacher. And it's been an incredibly successful program. People just love it. And I had a lot of input creating it with a friend, Michelle Leesenberry Christensen. She doesn't lead it with me anymore because she's doing her own work now. But she had a lot of the similar experience of being called to teach very young and kind of throwing herself into it without knowing what the hell she was doing. And um, it took me a long time, Sarah, to claim that I'm a teacher because I am a non-traditional teacher. And it took me a long time to claim the de the delightful archetypal energy of that word, the strength of that word, educator, teacher, someone who dispels ignorance, someone who invites you in to an encounter, an intimate encounter with yourself and other. And I, I love it. I love convening space. In fact, before we got on the phone, I was writing a description for a retreat I'm going to offer in October and just crying while I was doing it. I'm obviously crying a lot these days. <laughs> mm, I want to hear more about this retreat. <laughs> so um, I just, I'm part of a group of um, writers and entrepreneurs and coaches and we're called, we call ourselves a brain trust and I convened them and then they, be, it became a living thing where people invited other people and we settled into the form we're in and we've been doing it for about 10 years and we just had our in-person annual retreat down in Encinitas, California. And I did some real owning of what I want for the end game of my, of my teaching career and my, uh, I, you know, I'm 52. How, how long am I going to work? How long is my brain and my creativity going to really have something to offer? I mean, statistically, maybe till 60. I'm not saying that you have to quit and there's not beautiful writers and teachers past that point, but I also want to not be in that I'm going to live forever place because I don't think that's helpful. So I'm really starting to grapple with how many years do I have left? What do I want to give during those years? Who can I most impact? And part of my deepest desire, again, I just want to cry, is to convene more writing retreats. And I haven't let myself do that, honestly, Sarah. I have a lot, a lot of conversation in my head where everybody else gets to do that with people, but not me. I only get to do Taos, which is my annual writing retreat, even though it sells out in an hour. It's like, no, no, you can't do anymore. There's not enough demand. You're not allowed to do that. And, and part of this time in my life is to say, let's try what we want. What do you say? Let's mm -hmm. give ourselves what we desire. If it doesn't work financially, it doesn't work. So what? At least we, you know, there's this, this way as women, we have to embrace our desire. We have to embrace our creative longings. I, I think it's one of the ways we become whole. And they're so often put aside when we're young because we need to be practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned Taos, which uh, does sell out immediately um, mm -hmm. and is offered twice and, and is really, I think, not just a writing retreat that is um, that is something people are excited for and plan for all year long and, and a great opportunity to work with you, mm -hmm. but also is a recognition of the importance of the place, right? Taos is a really remarkable and magical place for anyone who's ever been there. And I'm curious, you mentioned that you're moving mm -hmm. and you currently live in the Pacific Northwest. And, mm -hmm. I, and I'm curious if you have noticed any influence of the, um, 
the culture and the way of living in the Pacific Northwest, particularly on or near the Olympic Peninsula where you are, um, in the way that you write and in the way that you approach teaching and life? Hmm. That's a great question. And I'd have to say no. (laughs) (laughs) I love this area. I'm going to miss it tremendously. Um, It's really magical. Um, But it hasn't impacted my writing, except that it does make it easy to stay inside a lot. (laughs) Because it's gray. It's not wet, but it's gray. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually think as much as I've loved living here, I'm not sure it's been the best place for my heart and soul. Mm. Uh, Bainbridge is a very interior place. People tend to move to the island to to, to go inside or to hide or cocoon. Not everybody, mm-hmm. but there is a general there is a general vibe in the northwest of 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 sticking to your own or sticking to yourself. And both Bob and I are, are, are hungry. We do have good community here, but we're really hungry for more or a different way. And, and we're hoping that that's something we can build in Colorado. Um, I'm also, it, it's going to be interesting to see how the sun and the vistas and the dryness affect me. And maybe I'll notice, maybe, you know, Harry Cruz, who was a professor of mine at University of Florida and a uh, very uh, controversial writer in the in the 70s, especially in the 80s, especially the 70s. He he wrote that he, could, he had to be away from his home to write about it, but he couldn't be too far away. He had to be about 100 miles away. He found Gainesville, Florida, the perfect place to write about Georgia. So maybe I'll write about the Northwest when I'm in Colorado. <laughs> hmm. I, I think that's something really interesting to think about. I, I noticed that for me, I am more able to write about the place I grew up the longer I live away from it. (laughs) Mm. And I think part of that, too, is the emotional impact of the work and and the kinds of writing that I do about that place. But also just noticing the things that I remember about it. Um, I grew up in northern Minnesota where there are three Indian reservations surrounding Mm -hmm. a small town. But the things that I find myself remembering are the way that the air feels different when you cross the border of the reservation Mm. and the way that it seems like the trees make a different sound in the wind when you cross those lines and they're, they're completely invisible and arbitrary lines, but there's just something unique about remembering a place and, and recalling that memory um, even from childhood, that I think for me there is some truth in that, you know, being away allows me to see it with new eyes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Beautifully said. I'd love to know the best advice you've ever received. Hmm. Oh, the best advice I've ever received. Gosh, that's a great question. Um, well, meet, greet, and welcome it all. Hmm. That's really the sum of, I would say, the core of my meditation practice. And, and as, as I maybe get a teeny bit wiser with age, what I'm trying to practice on a, you know, moment by moment basis, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, when I used to reject these parts of myself, it made teaching so much harder. It made writing so much harder and it made living a lot more exhausting but meeting and greeting and welcoming. So this morning I woke up and I've been in an extended period of great, of great joy 
and really developing the capacity for joy and love and a lot of it just kind of happening through grace. And I woke up this morning, I was depressed and I was crabby. And it may have been because I had some alcohol this weekend, which sometimes affects me poorly and, you know, definitely could be part of it. And I'm not sure what else. Uh, my stepson, bonus son, I like to call him, has been a little crabby with me lately and that sometimes sets me off. But, you know, to really welcome and greet that, you know, really welcome and greet that sadness and that depression. That was, that was hard. I'm still working on that this morning. But mm. yeah, meet, greet, and welcome. <laughs> <laughs> And you talk about uh, cultivating your daily practice of joy and welcoming and inviting. And I think um, listeners might not know, but late last year, you actually published a book about Mm. cultivating daily joy called A Year of Daily Joy with some incredible photography from National Geographic. And I'm wondering if that book is something that really came out of your personal practice or something that helps continue to feed your daily practice. Oh, boy, I want to lie here. I really want to lie and say, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, No, I had a friend who was the head of National Geographic Books, and she and I were hanging out in New York, and I spent the night with her, and she wanted me to write this book for them. (laughs) They wanted me to write a whole series, and I I didn't want to do that, so I just did one, and um, so it was a, it was actually an assignment. I've never done an assignment before, but I I took it as a chance to distill some of my favorite ideas about showing up and welcoming, meeting, greeting, and welcoming, and showing up and awareness, and um, really become a sort of a little a little cheat sheet to what I think is most important. And and it turned out beautifully. I was really happy because it was their project. I I did the I did the quote selection from a pretty limited pool and I did the writing of the prompts, but all the layout, all the art direction, it was all out of my hands and really indicative of how trusting I am. <laughs> but also like, oh good, that turned out well. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and somebody was like, somebody was like, oh my God, when did you take all these photographs? I'm like, oh no, no, no. no. <laughs> Please look at the photo credits at the end of the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I do reference it. It is on my desk. It's, uh, I, I lead an online um, writing and meditation uh, group. Uh, it's called The Oasis. It's, it's not open to new members right now, but it will be again in August for the fall. And I use that book a lot and I use my life organizer book a lot to inform the prompts that we write about or the meditations that we do. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the focus for that, like the focus for the Oasis, like the focus for these two books is how do we keep waking up? I mean, we know if we have any sense of awareness in our lives that to be human is to wake up and go back to sleep. And it's the way our brains are structured it's something we're going to deal with forever, and we can drop all the shame about it because it really is the way our neurobiology is formed. Um, a huge part, like somewhere like 95% of our awareness is unawareness. It's in our adaptive unconscious, right? We're, we're very habituated. And we're very habitual animals, mm-hmm. and we have a microsecond of a half a microsecond to, to be in awareness and choose around so many of our habits. And so to cultivate as many ways as we can to remain awake and and in self-compassion and in the invitation to begin again with what matters most to us, um, that's been a big part of my work. 
And that's, that's what's behind the Daily Joy book and the Life Organizer and the Oasis. Mm. I'd love it if you might be willing to share some of your work with us by reading some of your writing. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, would you like... I'd like I'd love to hear from the listeners. <laughs> Would you like a new rough piece or a well-polished much older piece? New. Okay. All right, everybody, here goes. This is first draft. Well, it's not totally first draft. It's been uh, it's been edited a little bit. Sorry, I closed the file. Now we are. Okay. This is from a book that I'm writing. Uh, and the working title is Now I Can See the Moon. The wind whipped at my coat, pushed the hood against my ears so I couldn't hear Nassim. I pulled it down, ignored the cold. I must hear what she's saying. There's something in me now that lights up whenever someone strays near a barn burning story. I have to hear it. Can you start over, I asked. Nassim nods, her purple quilted down cap, the sole bright color in the winter marsh, her hair beneath much longer than when I first met her four years ago. I was saying that I wrote the first book to delight myself. Nobody cared what I was doing. I didn't know if anybody would ever see it. I hoped that if I did a very good job, someone might publish it, read it. But there was this innocence to the process. Just me alone in my room, figuring out how to write a good story. A flock of geese flew over our heads, honking so loudly we stopped to watch them pass. The early morning light illuminated one side of their bodies so they briefly looked like flying shadow puppets. We bent ourselves against the hard gusts of wind again, marsh on one side, bay on the other, Puget Sound straight ahead. It was like a Cinderella story, Nassim said. So many amazing things happened, almost everything I could want. But then my agent and my editor started asking, where's the next one? Where's the next book? Started to feel like Cinderella trapped at the ball, not allowed to stop dancing. And there was also this disappointment. The book didn't do everything we had hoped. Nassim stopped to take pictures of useless bay on our left, named because the Europeans who vis first visited Whidbey Island had hoped it would be a deep port instead of the shallow bay it is. They, they all hated the new book. My agent would call me to tell me my editors thought it was too slow. I would send in more chapters and she would hate it more. Write me a synopsis, she said. Nassim turned to me. I spent a year writing that synopsis. A year! I flinch, walk faster. I hated writing synopsis. Almost every writer I know did. It's cruel, cold work seeing your story from afar remove and can turn you off from writing for good. So she hated the synopsis. Still too slow. Where's the story going? Nassim said. I didn't know the end, not like I had with the first novel. We reached the end of the path, surveyed the line of houses, mostly Cape Cod-style mansions, their back porches 40 feet from the seething Puget Sound and maybe 20 feet above the waterline. We picked our way carefully across the bones of the trees that littered the tide line, brought by storms that would someday flood these houses. The wind slapped at us, but the sun shone, gilding the choppy waves. Dancing across the water were two kite surfers. As we watched, one caught a gust and sprang from the water, did a somersault, and then splashed down on his back. We both gasped and laughed. It looked like freedom itself. We turned back. Nassim had a class to teach at Hedgebrook, the Women's Writing Center, and I was one of her students. So they kept telling me it wasn't working, Nassim said, but I loved this story. I loved those characters. I wanted to write this book, so I ignored them. I kept at it. She fell silent again. The wind was at our backs now, pushing us towards coffee and gluten-free muffins. I watched the mallard ducks on my right, embarrassed by the intimacy of the question I was about to ask. When did you know you had to leave that book and write something else? I almost stuttered getting it out. It felt like I was asking her about having an affair or getting a divorce. 
yesterday, being with the other writers around the dinner table talking about our work, I realized the book I was writing was killing me, killing me. She's such a thoughtful person. Her declaration didn't feel like hyperbole. And then the new story came and Jennifer, it has life. It's carrying me instead of me having to drag it along. I watched her face lighten and she laughed. I realized I don't like doing interviews about where I get my ideas. I don't like being forced to produce like a factory. I like writing. I like making dinner for my family and drinking wine with them. I like hiking. We gained the paved road. The wind was almost quiet here, the sun nearly warm. I don't know if anybody will publish this new book I'm writing and I don't give a damn. I'm gonna love writing it. That's what I know. I put my arm around Nessie and gave her a squeeze. We crossed the road, walked up the muddy track to the retreat center in our day. Other women were arriving, toting notebooks and laptops, wreathed in colorful scarves and practical boots. I waved Nassim off to finish preparing for her class, took myself in to join the other students. All day under the throng of conversations about writing voice and analyzing your work, Nassim's choice flickered. I was disturbed. How did she know it was the right thing? 270 pages, four years of work, gone. But it's not, I told myself driving to the ferry later. It wasn't burning down her barn of the book. She could always go back. And if not, no doubt themes from it, learning from writing it would inform the new book she was writing. So not a burning, but a possible burning. But still, how did she know it was the right thing to do? I suppose she didn't. She only knew she had to, that somewhere in the cleared space made by time set aside for writing in the company of other writers, she would finally accept that she had to leave it. It was killing me. She also said those words last night when I joined her and the other writing instructors for dinner at the communal table. When she told me she had first left the book, I felt so dizzy I had to grip the table. I parked in the ferry line to wait for the 6 p.m. boat. A giant full moon shone through and disappeared behind fast-moving clouds. Why was I so attached to the scene finishing that first book? I'd only read roughly three pages of it. I wasn't worried about her mental or financial well-being. I got out of the car, hurried across the road to the lagoon side, ignored the cold to watch the moon. Before I started this project, if she had told me she'd left the book, I would have been excited. Goody, something new. Now perhaps I weigh the costs of leaving more carefully, or I don't skip over that weightless moment of letting go. I have begun to know that moment. I stare at the moon. I've always felt a full moon. It's cause for celebration that I should do something to mark it, but I never do. Tonight I stand longer than I usually would, letting its strange glamour fill me. Then I make a little bow and scamper back to the warmth of my car. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Fun to read out loud. <laughs> Fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier your um, brain trust. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to that briefly and talk a, a little bit about your um, work creating your own mastermind group mm-hmm. and sort of how, where that comes from and uh, what that means for you. Mm. Well, it came from probably deep, uh, from a soul point of view, it, it came from a desire to connect. And again, with the wisdom of my soul knows that I struggle with being in community and being seen and seeing my own gifts. And so there's a part of me that was up to some good there <laughs> so many years ago when I called that together. But the surface need was, wow, I really wish I had someone who I could brainstorm for landing pages and sales pages and how much should I charge for this? And, you know, all the questions that come up when you're, when you're a solopreneur. And I just felt very lonely in it. And um, I had tried different coaches and sometimes coaching is, of course, very important and mentoring, but it's also nice to have peers when you get to a certain 
you know, at any level, beginning, medium, you know, um, having done it for 20 some years. So that was the impetus behind it. And, and then our group became really well known and we gave like a spontaneous talk at uh, the first world domination summit in Portland and, and, um, and people start, were always asking us, how do you do it? So I just created this low cost self-guided program. It's a hundred bucks and it just really lays out in short audios um, how to really determine what you want, how to make clear invitations, how to deal with the roadblocks that come along the way. And then true to, true to my form of creation, after I did that, then I started interviewing obsessively other people about their mastermind group. So there's a little library of uh, creative entrepreneurs talking about their different experiences with masterminds. I would say the, the, the hardest part about it being a self-led program is um, keeping people motivated to actually go make the offers and, to people, to find those people. And then the second thing is a really you know, it's difficult when you hit your first road bumps. Everybody needs to keep reinventing their group and dealing with stuff that comes up. And and I talk about that in some powerful ways within the course, but um, I think sometimes that's where people fall apart because they're really unwilling to talk about the difficult things that come up. Hmm. Yeah, but it's a good course. And, and we've launched some great groups, really great groups that have really been super helpful for people. Hmm. And I think that uh, talking about the hard stuff is not just something that comes up when we're creating a group of like-minded or supportive people, but um, also as writers, when we're writing about the hard stuff and when we are just on a day-to-day basis, um, Mm -hmm. finding ourselves struggling with something that on the outside might seem really small or conversely might seem really huge and managing our way through that. you mentioned your life organizer earlier as being one of the resources you use in the Oasis. And I, um, I'd i love to hear about how that came to be as both a book and an audio and what you hope users might get from that. Mm. Well, it really came out of a time in my life when I was um, a new mom. I, well, not new, but Lily was probably in maybe, you know, four and I was just so fragmented and so struggling. I was enjoying some of the greatest success of my life. I was doing a lot of speaking and um, teaching at places like um, Omega and um, just, you know, writing, writing, writing. And I, I don't think I had my my body and soul calm. That came later. That came when we moved up here. But there was a lot going on. And I was also wanting to be a good parent. And I felt like, you know, I would get like the Stephen Covey system and all these different, like, and nothing like, ah, nothing worked. And I was really looking for something that was more feminine and heart-based to, to, to be, to be listening to myself and steering by what mattered most. I was looking for a more sophisticated, intuitive system. And and then of course, pairing that with my appointment calendar, right. And And the part of me that had to remember to be certain places at certain times or, meet certain deadlines. But so that's where the life organizer came out of. It came out of my own scatteredness and my own yearning for how do I keep clearing the clutter in my head and making those decisions really to to do what's most important, what's most risky sometimes, what's most calling me, and then to be at one with it and not to continue to second guess it. And also I would add, Sarah, to codify some of the key concepts that that are important to me to remember, to live by. What do we really want? What is desire calling out in us? Mm. 
Um, what have we already learned? What are the life insights that we need to glance at every now and then and go, oh yeah, right. Yeah. When people, you know, for one of my life insights, for example, is I'm often attracted to very difficult women to be friends with. And then I get my heart broken a little bit. So if I can look at those life insights and collect them and add to them from time to time, sometimes I might not make the same mistake or not go down the path as long. Um, and there's some other basic tools in there that are just, you know, real simple, but real useful. So that was the impetus behind that book. It was a long time coming. It was quite actually quite difficult for me to write. But um, when it gelled, it gelled. And I'm happy it's 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 sold well and it's helped people in a lot of different it's been in different formats as well. So it's really had quite a long life. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about this question um, since I first uh, asked you to be on the show and you said yes, which was such a great honor for me. Mm-hmm. You're not shy about creating books, creating workshops, creating projects that are for women mm-hmm. and and really being clear that this is where your work is. Mm-hmm. And I resonate with that really deeply because I, for me, that's, that's my truth about my work as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear about how you came to that understanding and wh- how that journey has been for you to really be clear about, mm. you know, my work is really for women and, and creating space for women. Hmm. Oh, I, again, I, you know, it just, when, when I was writing that first book, the woman's comfort book, you know, it was, it was my twenties. So it was that time of, uh, at least for me, of understanding and connecting with feminism and women's circles and sacred practices. And, you know, it was just a time of great healing for me about, around being a woman, you know, a lot, I I still have baggage. I was raised by a very beautiful mother in pretty much a, a pretty strong Southern setting, although not traditionally Southern, but my family's from Southern Indiana and I was raised in South Florida. So there was a lot of Southern fe- feminine influences. My father, uh, who I love dearly, who's, who's since passed on, he was born in 1919. So he's a very different generation. He was 42, 43 when I was born. So, you know, very much a lot of indoctrination about what it meant to be a lady. Um, so I was fighting all of that and coming out of it. And, and remember, let's also put this in the historical time of, of, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And so all of that informed my work to really want to help liberate women. And, and that's remained true, although it's taken a different flavor. And the flavor now is really, what is that lost creative spirit that gets put aside that we need to reclaim and live into being as part of our path to fullness and wholeness for ourselves and for the planet? So I just, you know, I, I try to work with men. I invite men to some things. They never come. <laughs> so I'm like, and actually, but what's come up for me, and I've had a few, I've had some pushing back, um, is people who are uh, gender neutral or gender fluid mm-hmm. or, um, you know, have, have or were a man and are now in the body of a woman. And, uh, and I've gotten myself kind of tangled in that. Like, I'm not quite sure, like. I don't know if this, if I'm actually a good fit for you. I'm a straight white woman. Um, you know, I, 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 mm-hmm. it's not that I want to say, Hey, no, I don't work with you. I mean, I'm very inclusive, but I'm also very aware of the biases and the framework of my story that I have. 
Yeah, I I can relate to that. I myself have run into situations um, just with this show. You know that the the tagline of this show is "Women Writers on Life, Craft, and Changing the World," um, and yet at the same time, um, I sort of have given myself the freedom to say. I created this show in the box that it's in, which means that sometimes I get to smash the box and say, no, I want this other person who has this other story. And um, so I think it's it's that interesting challenge of of knowing who we work best with and knowing who we resonate with and at the same time um, opening ourselves to, you know, there may be someone that we don't know that we'll be a great fit with, but when the story comes to be, whether it's as a coaching client or a writing client, or even, you know, as someone we're mentoring, there may be that possibility. And so um, I, I, I really appreciate you being so open about mm. this, because it is, it is something that can be challenging. But at the same time, knowing who we work best with, helps us bring better work into the world and helps our clients bring better work into the world as well, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Essentially, if you just want to come at it from a marketing point of view, the, the tighter your niche, the often the better. And for those of you who are listening and you just cringe at the word niche or <laughs> decided that you're now going to go out and spend thousands of dollars figuring out your niche, please don't. Be The reason I created a program called Teach Now, not Teach Later, for example, is it's it, when we're creating as teachers or coaches or writers, any creative, any creative act. Okay, so that's life itself. We want to be creating and then we want to, to see what we just learned. And then we want to be creating and see what we just learned. So it's a constantly iter iterative process. And I'm very much in that in my own work. I just took off my... I, I was um, halfway through my career, five books in. I went to coaching school. I did a year-long program with Newfield Network and ontological coaching, and I loved it. And for about three years, I coached people a lot. I didn't love it so much. Uh, I don't love the long-term slog with people. I'm not honestly patient enough. I like the aha moments and retreats. Um, and then I like I like talking about practices so that people can can sustain those more themselves. So something like the Oasis is a perfect, like I'm just helping people sustain practices and showing up, but that heavy lifting is better done by other coaches and therapists. Um, but I do these one-off sessions and they're one, like they're blasts of ideas and creativity and, but they haven't been that satisfying either. So I'm taking them off and I'm going to do long, I'm going to do just work with writers and do commitment, three month commitment, fairly high end. So that's an iterative process. And someone might look at me and go, you've been doing this for 20 some years. How can you keep iterating? That's not okay. Oh, bullshit. Mm -hmm. Of course it's okay. And so a niche is the same thing. Excuse my digression. So, but I do, I do find that the more we can be specific about that niche, which is very frightening, especially in the beginning, but shoot, I get frightened by it now. Mm -hmm. um, often the more successful we'll be. And there's plenty of caveats to that. So feel free to, um, to ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd love to give you an opportunity to speak directly to listeners, um, share some of your wisdom as though they are sitting on the sofa with us. I so wish you were here sitting on the sofa with me. Both the dogs are on. Wait, are they both? No, one dog's on the sofa. The other dog's on the meditation cushion. She likes to sit on my meditation cushion and put her head on the 
there's two parts of the meditation cushion, you know, and she likes to, to make a little nest for herself there. So anyway, I wish you were here with me and the dogs and we could have a little bit of tea. And then what would I tell you? Um, so I wonder if you're listening because there's something about Sarah's life or my life that you imagine you would like for yourself. And so I just invite you to, to feel into what that would might be. Feel in through your body at first, not the mind so much. Like where does that feeling of there's something here for me that I want, that I yearn for? And feel into your body and see, is it around the heart or the throat? Maybe it's in your hands or your eyes. Whatever grabs your attention as a felt experience of yearning that may have brought you here. And as you feel into that felt experience, welcome it. Welcome that tightness around the heart or that flutter in your throat, that pulse at your temple. Welcome it fully. Don't try to understand it or wrestle it to the ground. And as you welcome it, you, you may find that a belief or a thought or an image that wants to be in conversation with you begins to emerge. And what I would invite you to do is to stop this interview and have a conversation with it, to welcome it, not to try to change it or get it to do something for you, but just to welcome it like you would a dear friend who is something to tell you and see where it takes you. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that moment and that wisdom. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It has been so wonderful to share this time with you today. I'm so grateful that you said yes and that you could make this space. It's been really fantastic and I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation with you and with listeners as we move forward. Oh, it was my pleasure. I love to talk. This is this is total joy to talk about the creative life, the inner life, the this wonderful intersection between creative joy and spacious awareness. That's that's my my heart space. So thank you for giving me this um, platform. Mm-hmm. And if listeners want to learn more about you and your work, including all of your books, they can find you at jenniferloudon.com. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Sarah. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with hand mapper, list maker, and builder of wings, Isabel Abbott. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.